Hey guys, and welcome to the Moms and Mysteries podcast, a true crime podcast featuring myself, Mandy, and my dear friend, Melissa. Hi, Melissa. Hi, Mandy. How are you? I think I'm doing okay. How are you? (laughs) (laughs) You know how last week we were like, oh man, this week? Well, I should have saved that for this week. It's just been one weird thing after another. It's crazy. It has been. I don't know if it's something in the air or what, but like I know so many people lately in the last two weeks that have been like, this terrible thing happened to me. Like I have a friend who like got her tire like – I don't know if it was slashed or what, but anyway, it was flat, but it was like a weird kind of flat. Like anyway, when she like came out of a store, so she was like, I don't know if someone slashed my tire or like what happened, but just like things like that. I've had like a few people mention to me just like weird things that have happened or like bad news they've gotten in some way. So yeah, hopefully that is not the case for everybody listening, but yeah, it has definitely been, it's been a, a couple of weeks for sure. Right? It's so weird. Yeah. So we are marching towards CrimeCon. It's pretty much upon us now. This might be the last time we mention CrimeCon, I feel like, for this month um, <laughs> because it's here pretty much. And yes, we've been doing a countdown. Melissa, you've been sending me a countdown periodically. And I've done my usual thing where I'm like, it's plenty of time. It's plenty of time. Uh-huh, it's plenty of time. Uh-huh. And now mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, this is actually happening next week. This week when is it even happening i'm see i don't even know now i'm it's like next all thursday frazzled. well next it's thursday. this thursday when we're recording you'll yes it will be gone um i i just appreciated that like two weeks ago you wrote me and said did we ever book our hotel <laughs> and, um, i was like we did that in january ma'am i was yeah. paranoid back then so um the two of us together make a good team but apart i think we might be a little bit of a disaster yeah i think it's definitely a case of two brains coming together to make one whole one. <laughs> <laughs> I hope it's the best parts of us that are coming together. You know what I mean? Not like I do too. the dead yeah. parts of our brains. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah, so hopefully, um, if you're going to CrimeCon, hopefully we will see you there. If not, then maybe we will see you at a future CrimeCon. Either way, we are very excited and looking forward to it. Absolutely. All right, so we're just going to get right into the story this week. We do have kind of a lot to get into. This is a very interesting story. And I am very curious to hear your opinions at the end, Melissa. Yeah. It was just before 10 p.m. on December 4th, 1998, when police were notified that a young woman was found lying face down in a grassy patch next to the sidewalk at the intersection of Edge Hill and East Rock Roads in New Haven, Connecticut. When officers arrived, they found the woman whose body was next to a tree and her feet were almost in the street. She'd been stabbed multiple times in the head, neck, and back, and the tip of the knife that she was killed with was lodged in the back of her skull. The woman was transported to Yale New Haven Hospital, where she was pronounced dead on arrival at 10.26 p.m. The woman was quickly identified as being a 21-year-old Yale student named Suzanne Joven, and the mystery of what happened to her began to unravel when investigators learned that she had been seen on the Yale campus alive about 30 minutes before she was found dead two miles away from there. By midnight, investigators were inside Suzanne's apartment searching for clues. They started by dialing every phone number that was written on a list that was taped near Suzanne's phone and speaking with all of her friends. Most of them were out partying that night, while others were at the movies. Among the people that police reached out to that night was Suzanne's boyfriend, 22-year-old Roman Caudillo. He was on his way back to New Haven after having spent the evening in New York City, which is about a two-hour's drive. Meanwhile, Suzanne's body was prepared for autopsy while investigators continued to search near the crime scene for evidence. It would later be revealed that DNA belonging to a man was found under Suzanne's fingernails. There was also some DNA mixed with Suzanne's blood, but unfortunately, forensic scientists weren't able to tell the nature of that cellular material because the DNA was mixed with a larger quantity of Suzanne's blood. From the beginning of the investigation, it appeared that the police believed Suzanne was murdered by a man who likely had jealousy, desire, or anger as a motive. Suzanne was a German native who had only been in the United States since 1995, Her parents were both American scientists, molecular and cell biologists, so freaking geniuses, who worked in Germany at the time of her birth. Suzanne had one younger sister, and they were raised as, quote-unquote, Americans in Germany, except for that part where they actually lived in a 14th century castle, which is so cool. (laughs) 
So Suzanne grew up speaking German and English fluently, and in the fifth grade, she began studying Latin. In seventh grade, she started taking French as well. Suzanne was also musically gifted and played the piano and the cello. By the time she was a teenager, she had already traveled to many places around Europe, and she'd even vacationed in Mexico, which is actually where her grandparents lived. Her intelligence and her high grades in school ended up paying off when she was accepted into Yale. Her first time even coming to the United States was in 1995 when she arrived to start college there. Suzanne had plans to attend graduate school and had applied to Tufts, Columbia, and Georgetown. She was an international studies and political science double major. She was a genius. That is a lot. Yeah. And many that knew her might describe her as being an overachiever, but that's really just who she was. She was someone that was extraordinary in everything she did. In addition to being talented and popular, Suzanne was also very physically fit. She was someone who jogged and took aerobics classes regularly, and she was really in great shape. According to a New Haven police release, Suzanne was a, quote, wonderful young woman and an outstanding student, end quote. She was also greatly admired as being a person with a social conscience who gave so much of herself as a volunteer, and she was always interested in assisting people who were less fortunate than herself. According to a Yale classmate, David Bach, Suzanne was, quote, full of exciting contradictions. She was extremely serious academically, but also just a great person to have fun with and hang out with. She was very traditional and stylish and feminine, but then also very rebellious and liberal, end quote. Suzanne's parents told Vanity Fair, quote, We were very proud of Suzanne and admired her greatly. She suffered no fools and could identify them with ease, end quote. Investigators tried to backtrack the day that Suzanne was found dead, particularly the hours leading up to her murder. It was learned that Suzanne had gone to Brewster Hall late that afternoon to turn in a draft of her senior essay for review by her senior essay advisor, who was James Van Develde. Her essay was pretty much done at this point, except for the conclusion. It was 21 single-spaced pages on Osama bin Laden and the terrorist threat to the U.S. security. And in this essay, Suzanne, quote, examined the terrorist's already prominent organization. After that, Suzanne spent the rest of the afternoon and evening volunteering with Best Buddies. She was actually the director of the Best Buddies program at Yale. She'd been a member since her freshman year, and she volunteered her time to help with the program that, quote, seeks to enhance the lives of mentally disadvantaged adults from the New Haven community by providing one-to-one friendships with Yale students. That particular evening, she was at a holiday pizza party that she had organized for the Best Buddies clients and their friends from Yale. Suzanne borrowed a car from the Yale carpool to transport some of the Best Buddies to and from this party. The pizza party was at the Trinity Lutheran Church and began at around 6 p.m. When the party was over, Suzanne returned the car to the parking lot on Edgewood Avenue, and then she went home to her apartment for just a few minutes. Sometime between 8.30 and 8.50 that evening, a group of Yale students passing by Suzanne's apartment saw her standing at the window, and they waved to her. And they actually spoke with her and asked her if she wanted to go to the movies with them, but she said she couldn't go because she had plans to stay home and work on her senior essay. At 9.02 p.m., Suzanne sent an email to a female classmate. The email was actually written in German, but the gist of it was that Suzanne was apologizing for not returning this classmate's phone call and telling her that she did have this classmate's GRE study materials, but she had actually lent them out to someone else and she was going to get them back. Suzanne told her friend that she would leave the materials in the foyer of her apartment for the classmate to pick up, and she even gave the code to her apartment just in case she wasn't there when the classmate arrived. At 9.10 p.m., Suzanne logged off. A short time later, at 9.20 p.m., Suzanne was seen walking on campus by fellow student Peter Stein. Suzanne was heading towards the Yale police office to return the carpool vehicle's keys, but she told Peter that she was going home right after and she was going to get some rest. Five minutes later, another student saw Suzanne coming from the direction of the police office, but they didn't stop to talk to her. This was the last time Suzanne was seen alive before her body was found a little more than an hour later. The student who last saw her at 9.25 p.m. later told investigators that she saw a man who was either Hispanic or Black wearing a hooded shirt and walking north. Suzanne was walking behind this person, also walking north at that time, and walking several paces behind Suzanne was a white, blonde-haired man with glasses who was dressed nicely. 
Suzanne's murder was the 14th one in New Haven that year, which was actually much lower than the previous years. The neighborhood that she was killed in, though, wasn't dangerous at all. It was actually a very wealthy area where many of the Yale faculty members resided, so having this student be brutally murdered on the street was absolutely shocking to the community, to say the least. This is an area where there's lights on every street, it's not secluded, so a crime of this nature felt very brazen. The search for evidence that would help explain what happened was really extensive. The sewers near the crime scene were searched, and local treasure hunters were asked to bring their metal detectors in to search the neighborhood. Police set up roadblocks and conducted interviews with numerous Yale students and faculty members. Since Suzanne's killer was believed to be a man, her boyfriend's DNA, as well as all male authorities that had contact with her body, provided a DNA sample, and all of them tested negative against the scrapings from under Suzanne's fingernails. Investigators spoke with and interviewed every man Suzanne knew, even asking them all whether or not they had ever slept with her. No one from Best Buddies was contacted or even informed of Suzanne's murder until several days later. Right after the murder was reported, Henry Lee, the infamous forensic expert, actually contacted New Haven police and volunteered to help, but he was told at that time that they didn't need any help and that an arrest would be made at any moment. So Henry thought the case was all solved, but that would turn out not to be the case at all. And we still have more to get into after one quick break to hear a word from this week's sponsors. Did you just finish a juicy true crime podcast and now you're thirsting for the next hit? Then you need True Crime Feed Podcast, unlimited premium true crime curated just for you. Find out about a serial dater turned serial killer. You'll also find out about the D.A.R.E. program, as well as bizarre black markets, political murder plots, and possibly the worst case of faking illness you may ever encounter. You know those feels you get when you're turning into a primo true crime podcast? The thrill chills. You can't get enough, but not every podcast hits the same. You can spend hours sifting through mediocre shows that don't deliver the goods. Well, not anymore. True Crime Feed Podcast has your back. True Crime Feed sifts through the archives from the past decade to select the best cases and gives you a quick overview sprinkled with a teensy bit of humor. Plus, there's a weekly top three power ranking for shows that are currently trending and lets you know what shows you should send down your podcast queue trapdoor. You know you want those thrill chills. So come and get them. Subscribe to True Crime Feed. That's True Crime F-E-E-D wherever you get your podcasts. There's never a great time to suffer with an uncomfortable bra, but summertime is the worst of it. Thankfully, Honey Love has revolutionized the bra game. Upgrade now to a bra that doesn't use uncomfortable underwire or bulky fabrics that just trap heat. The key to a great bra is feeling like you aren't even wearing one. My Honey Love bra is so comfortable, I actually sleep in it regularly. And thanks to Honey Love not having underwire, I'll never have an experience like I did a few years ago. I'll keep this short and sweet, but it ended with me ripping the underwire out of my bra in the bathroom of a funeral home because it was stabbing me in the chest. Needless to say, Honey Love's crossover bra would never do me that way. I have all the support I need without the underwire, plus the mesh detail helps keep it cute. Besides making bras that help with back smoothing fabric to prevent bra bulge, they have the most comfortable shapewear, which feels like an oxymoron, but with Honey Love, it's just facts. They also have tanks and leggings for everyday support. Treat yourself to the best shapewear on the market and save 20% off at honeylove.com slash moms20. Use our exclusive link to get 20% off, honeylove.com slash moms20. Cinched, snatched, and lifted. It's hot girl season, thanks to Honey Love. And now back to the episode. Before the break, we were just getting into the story of 21-year-old Suzanne Joven, who was a student at Yale. She had come to the U.S. from Germany specifically to attend college at Yale, and she has been found stabbed to death in the streets of a very wealthy neighborhood right near the college. So following up on some of the details that investigators uncovered about the hours leading up to Suzanne's murder... The investigators went to visit James Vandeveld, who, as we said before, was the Yale faculty member that Suzanne had chosen to be her senior essay advisor. James was a 38-year-old lecturer at Yale in the fall of 1998. He gave a seminar called Strategy and Policy in the Conduct of War to 40 students who had actually been selected out of 169 applicants, and Suzanne was one of those chosen to be in this seminar. 
According to Suzanne's friends, she really liked James in the very beginning, and a lot of students actually did. But that's why she picked him to be her senior advisor, and she even picked a topic that was right in James's wheelhouse in his area of expertise, and that was the topic of Osama bin Laden. Although things started off well between Suzanne and her new mentor, and he even wrote her a glowing review for graduate school, by November of 1998, things had changed, and Suzanne started to feel like James just didn't really have as much time for her anymore. She made numerous attempts to meet with him to discuss her senior essay, but she felt like he continued to just brush her off. In the weeks leading up to her death, Suzanne complained to her friends about James's lack of support and said that he had really not shown any interest in her work. According to her parents, Suzanne had turned in a draft of her essay on November 17th and then turned in another one right before Thanksgiving. She was supposed to meet up with James on November 30th, but James actually canceled their meeting because he said he hadn't yet had a chance to read the essay. His attorney later said that James had just gotten tied up over the Thanksgiving holiday, which is understandable, and he felt bad that he didn't have time to read the paper. And he could really tell that this upset Suzanne quite a lot, and so he was very apologetic, and he read the paper that same day and made a very lengthy review of it and agreed to meet up with Suzanne again on December 2nd to discuss everything. According to Suzanne's parents and a close friend of hers, she was still furious and was just very insecure about what would happen with this paper. The paper was actually due in just a few days on December 8th, and she was kind of still feeling a little bit of resentment towards James for the lack of mentoring when it came to getting this paper done. On December 7th, three days after Suzanne was murdered, police went to James's office to interview him. They talked to him for about 10 to 15 minutes, but at that point, there was no suggestion that he was a suspect in her murder. But all of that changed the very next day. James was interrogated for hours at the police station on December 8th, and by the end of it, he was accused of murder. Wow. During his interview, James told investigators that he was at his office for most of the evening on December 4th. He said a friend stopped by around 6 p.m. to see if he wanted to go to a movie, but James told him he was working all evening. He then went over Suzanne's essay revisions and planned to give her his comments the next morning. He said he took a short break at one point and walked up the street to Ingalls Rink to watch part of a hockey game before going back to his office and then finally going home for the night. James was at home alone when Suzanne was killed. He actually lived less than a mile from where Suzanne's body was found. James gave police consent to search his Jeep and his apartment and even offered to take blood and polygraph tests, but officers didn't take him up on that offer. According to James's attorney, police never actually searched his apartment despite telling the media that they had. On December 9th, the New Haven Register reported that there was a suspect in the case and that it was a Yale educator. They never specifically named James, but they didn't have to. It was so obvious that he was actually rushed by reporters that same day to give a comment. James went to see attorney Ira Gredberg later on December 9th, and he never spoke to police again, although they apparently also didn't really ask him to speak to them again, and they never forwarded any further questions to his attorney. Diving deeper into James's background, it's not exactly clear why the police believed he was responsible for murdering Suzanne. James had a PhD in international security studies, and prior to lecturing at Yale, he had held several other positions of importance. In 1988, he was assigned to work at the Pentagon in the State Department, where he actually stayed for over four years working on U.S.-Soviet disarmament issues. Also in 1988, he actually joined the U.S. Naval Intelligence Reserves, where he became a lieutenant commander with top-secret clearance. In 1993, James, who was a Republican, lost his appointed position with the State Department when Bill Clinton had been elected president. That fall, he became the dean of Yale's Saybrook College. In 1997, he took a leave of absence and actually went to Italy on assignment for naval intelligence. He came home in April of that year, and he finished the semester at Yale, and then he left and began working as the executive director of Stanford's Asia-Pacific Research Center. James was not a big fan of Stanford, though. He didn't like that the professors there could wear shorts. He preferred a more professional environment where he and his colleagues wore suits and ties to work. I wonder how James is doing in 2023 with all <laughs> <laughs> He actually resigned from that position in May of 1998, and he returned to New Haven and became a lecturer, although not a professor, at Yale, where he met Suzanne. 
On January 11, 1999, Yale publicly announced that they'd been informed by the police that James was in a pool of suspects, causing what James called immense and irreparable damage to the investigation and to his reputation, and this actually ended his career. James's contract was not renewed with Yale, and his classes for the spring of 1999 were canceled because Yale said that his presence on campus would be a distraction. James applied for over 100 jobs after this, but couldn't even get any interviews, and it took him over a year to actually find another job. James's lawyer tried hard to figure out why he was suspected of murdering Suzanne. He followed the police investigation, and he even interviewed the people who were questioned by the police. His attorney told Vanity Fair, quote, There was a witness who saw a car hightailing out from that area who spoke with the police. He described it as a small red car, and the police asked him 14 times if it was a big red Wrangler, and they showed him pictures of James's car, and he said that that's absolutely not who was driving it. James's attorney believes that the police zeroed in on James after learning about an incident with a former girlfriend that happened earlier in the summer of 1998, so just a few months earlier. James had allegedly gotten back in touch with this woman before he went to California, and we're not exactly sure about the details of what happened, but the woman, his ex-girlfriend, told police that James was harassing her and stalking her. Now, James was never arrested or questioned about this, and he denies ever stalking anyone, but his attorney thinks that this particular complaint became a central element in the investigation into Suzanne's murder, and that the police were just convinced that James was a weird kind of guy. According to Vanity Fair, the initial theory was that James and Suzanne were actually involved in some type of affair that had gone wrong. But after thoroughly investigating this theory, they found no evidence whatsoever that pointed to a romantic relationship of any kind. Many students were interviewed and asked if they were ever aware of James having affairs with other students, and everyone they talked to said there was no indication of that happening. There was not even any rumors about such a thing. After James was named a suspect, police spoke with the student who said that they had seen Suzanne walking that evening around 9.25 p.m., and this is the same person who said there was either a black or Hispanic man walking in front of her and then a blonde white man with glasses walking behind her. So when this police spoke to this student again, she said that she had seen James's photo on the news and she did believe that he was for sure the tall blonde man that she saw walking behind Suzanne that night. Police also asked the student who saw a man running nearby the crime scene whether or not James was the person running, and she said that he wasn't. So this particular student was never contacted again, not until years later, which we'll talk about in a little bit. By the end of the year, investigators had pretty much hit a brick wall. The New Haven PD called Henry Lee back to look at some of Suzanne's clothing, as well as a fresca bottle that was found in the bushes near her body. Henry actually spent all of his Christmas processing this evidence and said that he, quote unquote, tried his best, but he only received some of the physical evidence while other pieces have been sent to the FBI. And Henry said that this was a mistake because evidence should usually just be sent to one lab. In March of 1999, police chief Melvin Wearing admitted that they were at a dead end. The governor of Connecticut at that time, John Rowland, offered a $50,000 reward for information leading to the arrest and conviction of Suzanne's killer. In May of 1999, Yale posthumously awarded Suzanne with her degree. She was also awarded the Roosevelt L. Thompson Prize for commitment to and capacity for public service. In September of 1999, James professed his innocence, telling the current that the New Haven PD had exhausted their expertise and that he recommended the FBI or state police take over the investigation. But still, by early 2000, James was the only suspect that police had ever named publicly. ABC aired an episode of 2020 about Suzanne's case on March 1st, 2000, in which James gave an interview. He said, quote, the New Haven police had this notion that this was a crime of passion and we must have had a relationship. And did she attack me? Did she attack my manhood? Did we argue about the relationship? It's ridiculous. I had no relationship with this woman. We never argued. I never saw her outside of class. I don't even know where she lived. And here they are accusing me of murdering her, end quote. So James went on to say that he doesn't have confidence in the New Haven Police Department or in their integrity, and that they continued to engage in quote-unquote ridiculous speculation. 
He said Suzanne's case was dead, and his biggest fear was that her killer would never be caught. James actually lost his life savings and struggled to find jobs, which is something he said wouldn't end until the police arrested someone or formally withdrew their label of him as a suspect. Eventually, though, James was able to find work. By 2018, he was a lecturer at the Center for Advanced Governmental Studies at John Hopkins University. He was also an adjunct faculty member at the School of Foreign Services at Georgetown University, as well as being a lieutenant commander in the U.S. Naval Intelligence Reserve. Also on March 1st, an ABC spokesperson released a three-page press statement and partial transcript ahead of the 2020 episode. This statement said James had taken three polygraphs administered by private examiners that he actually hired himself. The first two tests were inconclusive, and he passed the third one in which he was tested on whether a statement he made and signed denying that he killed Suzanne was actually true. James was not directly asked whether he killed Suzanne or not in this polygraph. In 2000, Yale hired Andy Rosenzweig, hope I said that right, a former New York Police Department lieutenant and former chief investigator at the Manhattan DA's office to look into Suzanne's murder after her parents actually pressured them, pressured Yale, to hire investigators. Andy recruited another NYPD officer named Patrick Harnett to help him. So these two investigators interviewed James for several hours in which James did everything he possibly could to cooperate. According to Andy, when James agreed to be questioned by New Haven Police Department just four days after the murder, he willingly spoke to them for hours and offered to take a polygraph, gave the police the keys to his car, and told them that they had consent to search his apartment. James said that he was interviewed by Andy and Patrick three times for a total of six hours, and he also gave them a sample of his DNA. This sample was tested against the DNA found under Suzanne's fingernails, and it was determined to not be a match. However, the authorities said that until a match was made, no suspect could be eliminated just because their DNA didn't match, which is... (laughs) So no one can be eliminated at all. That's wild. Yeah. So James said, you know, he passed three separate polygraphs with a nationally renowned former um, FBI polygrapher and an FBI Academy instructor. And after about two years of conducting their own investigation, Andy and Patrick actually decided to just resign from the case because Andy said he felt like they were really just spinning their wheels. And they encouraged the authorities that were working on the case in New Haven to pursue other avenues besides James, but the authorities just weren't really interested. So we'll get into a little more about what Andrea and Patrick thought later, but basically they think James is innocent and that the authorities wasted a lot of time and effort focusing in on him. In March of 2001, Yale announced that it was putting up $100,000 in reward money for new information that led to a conviction, and that brought the total reward money to $150,000. At this point, despite his DNA not matching, James was still the only publicly named suspect. Luckily, James was able to find work as an intelligence officer for the Department of Defense. He later said that the Department of Defense had conducted their own review and they never pulled any of his top security clearance. By 2003, the case was still unsolved and James wrote a piece for the Yale Daily News in April of that year in which he once again maintained his innocence and talked about his really his disdain for his whole predicament. He said, quote, The outrageous insinuation that I had anything to do with this crime is criminal, cruel, and irresponsible. Nevertheless, Yale and the New Haven police refused to retract their label, despite making no progress in the case and finding no reason to suspect me. In fact, the police refused to communicate with me whatsoever, as does Assistant State's Attorney James Clark, who was in charge of the case. There and the university's continued failure to retract that label in the ensuing four years has greatly compounded the damage done to my life since January 1999. The Yale statement has derailed the investigation and likely caused the case to remain unsolved, end quote. And we're going to get into so much more of this case after one last break to hear a word from this week's sponsors. (music) 
Hydration isn't just essential for athletes. It's also essential for mathletes or even the watching TV in my bed like it's my job leads. And with just one liquid IV pack, you can get hydrated two times faster than just drinking water alone. Plus you get great flavor as well as essential vitamins and three times the electrolytes as leading sports drinks. Plus with liquid IV, you're getting a quality product made with quality ingredients that is non-GMO and free from gluten, dairy, and soy. You can keep Liquid IV in your purse or even your pocket to add to your water at any time to make staying hydrated easier than ever. I'm someone that struggles to drink anything other than Diet Coke. Liquid IV actually gets that, and that's why they have 12 flavors, including watermelon, strawberry, and passion fruit, so I will never get bored. Real people, real flavor, real hydrating. Grab your Liquid IV in bulk nationwide at Costco, or you can get 20% off when you go to liquidiv.com and use code MOMS at checkout. That's 20% off anything when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code MOMS at liquidiv.com. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. One of my favorite quotes from The Office is the quote, my mind is going a mile an hour, mostly because mine always feels like it's an overdrive. So I find that quote absolutely hilarious, and I can't imagine not having a brain that's constantly racing. It turns out that one thing that can help with those racing thoughts is to talk them out with a therapist, and you can do that thanks to BetterHelp. BetterHelp is therapy that is completely online. From scheduling to communicating with your therapist, all of it can be done online, making it as easy for you as possible. To get started, you just fill out a brief online questionnaire and get paired with a therapist based on your answers. If you find that you'd like to work with a different therapist, you can do so for no additional charge. Therapy has been such an important tool for me in my life, and BetterHelp makes it so easy to get started. Whether you have those racing thoughts or you need help with life's bigger issues, sometimes talking it through with a therapist can make all the difference. Make your brain your friend with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash moms today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com slash moms. It's been a while since I've had a baby of my own, and some days I miss it so much. The baby cuddles and baby smiles, but when it comes to diaper rashes, not so much. I remember the first time my oldest had a diaper rash, I was really devastated. Here's this tiny thing totally dependent on me, and now she's fussy and obviously uncomfortable, and I'm supposed to have the answers. Well, with time and treatment, it went away, but what I really wanted was to avoid it altogether. And now, baby butts rejoice. New Huggies Skin Essentials are here, a brand new dermatologist-approved line of diapers, wipes, and pull-ups training pants, all designed with baby's sensitive skin in mind. The wipes are thick and have zero harsh ingredients for a great, gentle clean. Pull-Up Skin Essentials has got your big kid covered, too, with a training pant that's ultra-soft and breathable to help protect sensitive skin throughout potty training. Whether you're a first-time parent or a seasoned pro, make it easy on yourself and your baby with Huggies. Learn more at Huggies.com. Once again, head to Huggies.com to learn more. And now back to the episode. So before the break, we were discussing this article that uh, James had written declaring his innocence and also, again, pointing out that the police aren't really doing anything because they keep focusing on him and how this is probably not only I mean, it is ruining his life, but it's probably also hindering the investigation, of course, because they're looking at the wrong direction. They're all focused on him and, and nothing else. This is honestly, I feel like one of like the scariest things that could happen to you as a person being like wrongfully accused of a crime or being accused of something that you didn't do. I mean, even if you don't, even if it's not as serious as murder, I feel like even in my regular life, I'm like, I don't want to get in trouble for something that I didn't even do. But on this type of scale, when you're talking about such a serious yeah. crime, and like this man is saying, like, my life has been ruined, I can't find work, like I have always held like these very prestigious positions. Right. And like now, like my entire reputation is trashed, because people think that I'm a, a murder suspect. And people think I might have like hurt this young woman. And I just can't imagine like finding myself in such a position like that's truly a nightmare. Yeah, I can't remember where I heard this from. It was some crime documentary, but I remember a defense attorney saying, "You can say you'll never commit a crime, but you can't say that no one will ever we'll accuse, accuse you." you. Right. And I that always sticks with me with these things. Just one day somebody's life can be absolutely turned upside down because the police are chasing the wrong rabbit or right. whatever. Obviously, Suzanne's family's been through the most, but this is another of person course, who's right. a victim in this case. In September of 2006, Suzanne's case was handed over to the state's cold case unit, and in June of 2007, a team of retired Connecticut state police detectives called the Joven Investigation Team began to reevaluate the case. 
They hope to conduct an objective, independent inquiry into Suzanne's murder by reexamining all the evidence that had already been collected, as well as seeking new information. In July, the team announced that they had re-interviewed the witness who saw a man running in the area nearby around the time that Suzanne was killed. She had not been spoken to since she told police the runner was not James many years ago. The woman told this new team that the runner was a white man with blondish hair, chiseled features, and was wearing dark clothes and a loose-fitting green jacket. The man was physically fit and looked to be between 20 and 30 years old. Based on this description, a sketch of the man was drawn up and distributed around the neighborhood and to Yale alumni groups. It was also learned that there were some pretty big mistakes made in the original investigation. The DNA from the fingernail scrapings that was long believed to belong to the killer was actually determined to have come from the lab worker who initially worked on the case and had contaminated the sample, which, oh my gosh, can you think of anything worse than this? It, it just... What do you do? That's like your and whole finding thing. this out like so many years later too. Finding out like this whole time that that was just an empty like yeah. it was a road to nowhere from the very beginning. Yeah, exactly. It was also learned that police never tried to find out who Suzanne had loaned her friends' GRE study materials to. They were hoping to track down whoever that person was and to speak with them. Years later, in 2012, it was reported that authorities were now investigating tips from several New Haven area residents that said the killer may have been a mentally disturbed Yale graduate student. The name of the alleged suspect was not released because he was never named by police, but the New Haven Register refers to him as Billy. Unfortunately, though, Billy actually died in 2012 under the most bizarre of circumstances. So on the day that he died, Billy called an acquaintance, an attorney by the name of Alan Rosner, and asked Alan if he could transfer the title of his condo over to his niece via a will. Alan asked Billy why he'd be worried about a will when he was so young. So Billy hesitated, but then he said, quote, they're out to get me. They're closing in, end quote. Billy actually made a will that day and had his neighbors sign as witnesses. Shortly after 9 p.m., Billy was driving on I-95 when he hit a Jersey barrier. He exited the car and actually started running in the left-hand lane. He grabbed onto the side of a truck, then made his way into the back. Billy then jumped in front of an oncoming car. He was pronounced dead at the scene from a head injury. A witness said, quote, it's crystal clear it was suicide, end quote. One of the other tips came from a man named Giles Carter, who lived one block from where Suzanne was found dead. And this man, Giles, actually knew Billy and said that he had been trying to help him for years. According to Giles, Billy had spent the summer of 2011 confined to a psychiatric hospital. While he was there, he wrote a 30-page diary about this hospital stay. And in this diary, he talked a lot about his troubles with women and with his parents. He also wrote that he was involved in a workshop that he said, quote, was perhaps performed to have me confess to the unsolved crime for which I thought I might have been investigated when paranoid and depressed 13 years earlier. He also wrote that he was a prisoner of incorrect medication, poor doctors, a terrible hospital, inscrutable law enforcement, and an unsupportive network of family and friends. Giles said that a woman told the New Haven Police Department that Billy had been harassing her in 2011, and this was after they had just gone on one date. She said Billy wouldn't stop calling her at her home and even at her job, and he was sending her nonstop emails. Police told Billy that his behavior was creepy, and the woman really wanted him to stop contacting her. And Billy told the officers that he had mental issues, and he was very depressed, and he mentioned having a poor relationship with his own mother. He felt that his family didn't care about his mental health issues, and they just told him to talk to his psychiatrist about them. In October of 2011, Billy showed up at his friend Giles's house in a very agitated state. He was yelling about his parents again, talking about how angry he was with them. So Giles, you know, in an effort to calm Billy down, invited him to go for a walk. So they're out for this walk, and as they were walking near Edgerton Park, Billy turned to Giles and said, quote, there's something I have to tell you. I am obsessed with the murder of Suzanne Joven. So Billy explained that his roommate had been watching a news report about Suzanne's murder shortly after it happened. And his roommate made this comment and said, 
they'll never catch me. And Billy took this as a joke at first, but now Billy was telling Giles he was convinced that his roommate's joke is what had led to the police trying to trap him into confessing to this crime. Billy was almost in tears while he was telling Giles how unhappy he was that, you know, his obsession with this case prevented him from ever having a relationship of his own with a woman. According to Giles, Billy didn't know how to deal with women on an emotional level. He was drawn to women, but he also had a very difficult time being around them. And when he felt rejected, he would fly into a rage. One example of this is a time that a woman in a salsa class that Billy was in turned him down for a dance, and he lashed out and screamed at her and said, what's the matter with me? Giles said that Billy emailed him on March 2nd, 2012, and part of that email said, quote, I believe I was under investigation for the Joven murder, which I had nothing to do with, and ironically became paranoid about 13 years ago. One of the other tipsters was a Yale Law School professor named Jay Pottinger, who had Billy in one of his classes. Jay said that Billy's mental health issues were obvious and that he really bothered the women at the architectural firm that he worked at. Other tipsters presented police with Billy's yearbook photo from the time Suzanne was killed and asked them to look at how similar he looked compared to the sketch of the man that was still a mystery that had been seen running near where Suzanne was killed. They also said that Billy was an avid runner, and he often did wear loose-fitting, green-colored jacket and pointed out that architectural students often also carry X-Acto knives along with them. A sample of Billy's blood was taken after he died, so police could test Billy's DNA against the DNA that was found in Suzanne's case. When the New Haven Register asked Chief State's Attorney Kevin Kane about Billy, Kevin said, quote, We have not made any connection that would warrant any action by us. Kevin said that he wouldn't discuss any specific things they've done or not done, and he also wouldn't say whether or not they were actually still investigating Billy as a possible suspect. Meanwhile, James had filed lawsuits against the city of New Haven and Yale University, and those were settled in June of 2013. The city of New Haven paid him a sum of $200,000, but Yale didn't say how much they actually paid him. A short time after these lawsuits were settled, the New Haven Register asked State Attorney Michael Deerington if James was no longer considered a suspect, and Michael said, quote, I think that's fair to say. He didn't answer any follow-up questions, though. James said, quote, I feel it's simply wrong that the state has the power to destroy someone by branding them. That shouldn't be permitted legally. I know of no other municipality in America that does what New Haven and Yale did. First and foremost, it may likely have destroyed the investigation since it gave a false sense of progress, but it was also cruel, not only to the victim's family, but for the entire Yale community, end quote. In 2016, Chief State Attorney Kevin Kane disbanded the Joven investigative team, and by 2018, he was overseeing Suzanne's case via the state cold case unit. The first step was to get all of the investigating agencies' information together in one place so they actually knew everything they had. Then they were to review every piece of physical evidence. They resubmitted Suzanne's clothing for touch DNA testing on the inside of her sleeves and her other clothing. The team also brought the FBI to assist. According to Kevin Kane, all the questions remain the same. Where was Suzanne going, and how did she get to the corner where she was found 20 minutes later? In December of 2018, the New Haven Register reported that Andy Rosenzweig and Patrick Harnett, the two retired officers that had taken over investigating after Yale hired them, they accused the Connecticut authorities of botching the investigation right from the start because they only focused on James, who was innocent. The former investigator said that they were coming forward because they believed the case could be solved if all the investigators who had worked on the case in the past could come together, share information, and follow new leads. Andy said that investigators and prosecutors had been wrongfully invested in one single theory and that not much had really changed in the last 20 years. He said that James never should have been a suspect in the first place, and it was ridiculous to insinuate that the small disagreement Suzanne had with James over her senior essay was motive for murdering her. James's reputation was ruined as a result of the allegations, and Andy also brought up how damaging it is when the public is constantly hearing reports that the police already know who committed the crime and they're going to be arresting someone soon. 
this makes people think that they don't need to call and report yeah. tips anymore, you know, because whatever they have probably isn't important since the police keep saying they already have it under control. So totally. it's impossible. Yeah. In this case, it's impossible to know how many potential sources never even came forward with information in Suzanne's case. Andy said he had personally identified about half a dozen suspects other than James who should have been investigated. But at that time, he didn't elaborate on who those people were. He did say that he tried to get the other investigators to realize there was no evidence against James and that they should be looking in other directions, but they just didn't listen to him. Andy came up with a theory, which he did discuss with the other investigators. He wanted to look into the possibility that a terrorist organization could be behind the murder because Suzanne was writing her senior essay on Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda. But the other investigators were not interested in this theory whatsoever. Patrick said that he never felt James had any motive to kill Suzanne, nor was there any significant evidence that even pointed towards him. A state attorney was asked to comment on Andy and Patrick's comments and said that Suzanne's case was still being actively investigated and the investigation was well-staffed and had the resources and federal assistance needed. State attorney Kevin Kane declined to comment on what Andy and Patrick said about the investigation being plagued by focusing their time on James. Kevin said, quote, I won't acknowledge there was or was not a focus on anybody, end quote, which is the most non-answer answer. When asked if he stood by then-state attorney Michael Deerington's 2013 statement about no longer considering James a suspect, Kevin said, quote, I'm not stepping back from that. I'm not saying anything. We could get in a big debate here. What does the word suspect mean? Do you mean there's probable cause to believe a person committed the crime? I certainly wouldn't identify anybody as being a suspect, end quote. Suzanne's parents said they traveled from their home in Germany to visit New Haven investigators in 2018. In an email, the Joven said, quote, New people and new technology are involved in what appears to be a very serious and focused effort. We appreciate the extraordinary persistence and dedication of the authorities in New Haven and the state of Connecticut. Where it will lead is hard to say. For us, personally, nothing has changed. Nothing will change, end quote. Suzanne's case is currently being handled by the Division of Criminal Justice Cold Case Unit, who continues to pursue leads. The Joven investigative team still spends unpaid personal time investigating the case as well. According to the Division of Criminal Justice, quote, the team and the division are asking for a renewed commitment by the public to assist in solving the homicide of Suzanne Joven. We are interested in all available information or leads, no matter how remote or trivial that information may seem. We want to hear from anyone who has heard something, seen something, or who may even have repressed the knowledge of something that could be related to the murder of Miss Joven. Do not assume that someone else has already provided the information. Even if you already made a call in response to previous requests for information, you should call again so that the team may follow every possible lead, end quote. You can call the Cold Case Unit toll-free tip line at 1-866-623-8058, or you can send an email to joven, J-O-V-I-N, dot case at ct dot gov. The state of Connecticut is still offering a $50,000 reward for information leading to the arrest and conviction of Suzanne's murderer. Yale University has still committed to an additional $100,000 reward. So this story is so wild because it seems like where Suzanne was killed, it's an area people are walking. Like how many people were inviting other people to the movies that night? Like everyone right. was out and about. There's a hockey game. It's this safe area. So how how did no one really see anything? Yeah, that's the thing that kind of gets me too. There was something that Haley included in the research that said that this particular year, it was actually like unseasonably warm for being December. And so yeah. there was a lot of people kind of out and about more than usual taking walks and, you know, having their pets outside and yeah. kids playing outside later into the evening and things like that. So it does seem kind of strange that something like this could happen in a neighborhood where there seems to be like a decent amount of activity going on. And from everything that people who knew Suzanne said about her, it's not, it doesn't sound like she really had any enemies or a lot of people that didn't like her. So it is, it definitely makes you wonder if this, and I know a lot of times they always look for people who are close to the person, but in this case, it does make me wonder if this was a random attack and that was kind of why they didn't really have a lot to go on. Yeah, yeah. I mean, because none of it really makes much sense. And the professor thing doesn't make any sense. And the fact no. that they... 
made it so vague and had all these opportunities to say, you know what, he's taken polygraphs for whatever you think about polygraphs. We've tested DNA. He offered to let us go through all of his stuff. He's been open with his attorneys to not be able to say, that's not really the direction we're looking in or, you know, whatever. But to let this person have this over their heads for all this time is is gross, I think. And oh, for hinders sure. the investigation because you do think, oh, yeah, that's the one. If you think Suzanne Joven's case, if you live there, oh, that's the one the professor did this. You know what I mean? Right. Like that's going to be how it's remembered. So he's not getting away scot-free even even at this point if they make a huge right. statement declaring his innocence. So it's amazing how how that can happen and how that can affect people. Yeah. And um, another kind of note about the case, I think I only briefly mentioned in the beginning that the tip of the knife that Suzanne was killed with was actually found still lodged in her skull, but they never found the rest of it. So whoever murdered her took the murder weapon with them. So that's also another kind of important piece of information because if you know someone who has like a you know at the time it would have been useful to have right. that kind of out there and say yeah. like that way if you know somebody like if you have friends who are in you know these classes where they carry knives like if you notice a knife looks a little funny like right. let us know. it's just stuff like that but it's um I don't know like it, it's really sad it's sad for of course Suzanne's family who still doesn't have yeah. answers and still doesn't know what happened to her but also really my heart does go out to James because that's like something in your life that you said you can't ever really get away from once. And you have no control. No control. You just have to convince people. And like you were saying earlier, him having these like important jobs and stuff, it is kind of wild to just be like, sorry, you're basically poison now in all your work just because someone brought your name up in in this investigation. But man, I just feel for Suzanne's family having their daughter over here her first time, you know, coming to the States. She's doing so well. She's so helpful. She's such a nice person, a great person. And and this is what happens. It's just heartbreaking. And thank you guys so much. uh, Before we get into last thing, before we go, for all of you who made donations to Season of Justice, we made, we didn't hit our goal, but I'm so happy with where we ended up. We raised over $1,600 for Season of Justice and for the families. And thank you so much, everyone that gave. I don't have the final list of the last few people that gave, but when we get that, it'll be next week. We will definitely shout you out. Absolutely. All right, Melissa, let's turn the page and move on to a little silly last thing before we go. Let's do it. Okay, Melissa. So for this week, last thing before we go, we're getting into the fall, the autumn. So we are going to share some fun facts about the fall because I love the fall so much. Uh, And Melissa, even though I know you don't ever like the spotlight being on you, we won't say when it is. Your birthday is in the fall. It's in the fall. It absolutely is in the fall. It's in the fall. Mm -hmm. And that makes you very lucky because did you know, Melissa, that research has shown that people born in the fall are actually more likely, and I don't know if this is a positive or a negative for you, people born in the fall are more likely to live to be a 100 years old. <laughs> okay, here's the thing. I watched a documentary a week ago, and it changed my life. It's called Blue Zones. It's called Live to 100. Now I want to live to 100 after watching it. And wait, it's Blue amazing. Zones are places, right? There, it's places where it's like the population there tends to live much to longer. 100. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I feel like I would love to live to 100 if my quality of life was good. That's the thing. I don't want to live to 100 and spend like 15 years of that being absolutely miserable. So like I would rather die at 85 if I was going to be like miserable for 15 years. But if I was healthy and happy, living for 100 years sounds pretty cool. But Melissa, I think you have a better chance of it than I do, according to this research. Good for me. Sucks for you. Um, <laughs> but uh, if you haven't watched it, watch it. It's it's really good. I think you would enjoy it. It's just like all these like real life things that they're not even doing it on purpose. And they're living this long just like from small changes. I don't know. If you need motivation, that, that's that been good motivation for me this week. Okay, Mandy. Mine are more um, like questions. So okay. I'm going to give you multiple choice. What species travels thousands of miles to their wintering grounds in Mexico? Is it bears Monarch butterflies or geese? It has to be the butterflies. Good job. Um, I was hoping to throw you off, but I almost <laughs> added possums as an option. But oh, you got gosh. it. Monarch <laughs> butterflies. <laughs> they do – their wintering grounds are in Mexico. I didn't know that. Wow. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. 
Melissa, have you ever been bobbing for apples? Um, As a kid, I'm bobbing for apples or bobbing for anything. (laughs) In a post-COVID world, like a pandemic, (laughs) isn't it wild to think we ever did that? Like, yes, I was telling my daughter about it. I'm like, we had a thing. I remember at church, just water being in a kid's pool and every kid just putting their head in there, trying to all their germs. You know, you didn't call out of school to if you were ever sick. So it's just all the everything and they're bobbing for apples. Yeah. Well, I'm not quite sure why this became a fall activity or a fall ritual, maybe because apples are harvested in the fall. But did you know that it actually, bobbing for apples was not like a kid's thing that you just did for like a fun fall festival activity yes uh this was actually a courting ritual this was a british courting ritual so instead of your (laughs) typical blind date or hey not even blind let's go on an actual date and get to know each other what they used to do is that men would be assigned an apple and then the women would bob for them i guess they had like a bucket full of apples and each one was assigned to a man and so like you would try to get the one for the man that you wanted and hopefully I'm not get horrified. The one. Yeah, if you did though, if you did get the apple that your man, your chosen man had picked, then it meant that you were meant to be. <laughs> and that you probably have five different strains of the flu right now. Can you imagine? That's bobbing, so like the gross. act of bobbing for apples is so awkward and weird. Like I wouldn't even want my own current husband to watch me doing that. Like I'd be like, don't, no. don't watch and definitely don't take videos or anything like that. Yeah, like, there's – Pictures are not allowed. That being the way that you meet your person. Uh, No. mm -mm. Also, I think you said my current husband, which absolutely cracked me up because I know you don't have a second one, but you're like, this one isn't. And I've never had another one. The next one. one. (laughs) I hate that so much. And that is the most disturbing thing I've ever heard. The only thing that would make it worse is if you had to get him with your feet. That's the only way it would be worse. (laughs) Oh, I hate it. Okay, Mandy, what type of ocean creature is typically harvested in the autumn harvest is what it was called? Crabs, shrimp, or lobsters? I guess lobsters? Yeah, I wouldn't think of lobsters as like a fall meal, but apparently it's like (laughs) a thing that happens in the fall, according to one website I was on. Well, in your defense, I guess, in my defense, in my defense for knowing this, in your defense (laughs) for not knowing this, my one of my very first jobs, not my very first, but like my second job, maybe I worked at Red Lobster. So I learned way more information wow. about like lobster season. <laughs> yeah, you know all about Lobster Fest, man, Cheddar Bay Biscuits. Terrible. Ooh. Oh my gosh. The employees Good times. Yeah. Yeah, sure. <laughs> okay. So for my last one, I just have like kind of a little fun fact, something I didn't really know. As we said, we don't really get a lot of like the typical traditional fall things. Like the leaves don't really change colors here. They kind of go, I mean, I guess they go from like green to maybe like yellow to brown right but we don't get all the pretty like reds and pinks and oranges and yellows and everything so melissa do you know the actual reason why leaves change colors in states that are not florida (laughs) (laughs) yeah we definitely have a caveat there no i don't i have no idea Okay, so apparently... Photosynthesis? That's my only guess. Well, I feel like it's kind of similar because I actually found two different facts. They're right next to each other, but they're kind of going along the same thing about leaves. So apparently the leaves changing color is actually caused by sugars that are trapped in the leaves. Um, And I guess whenever the weather starts changing, um, it's because the sunlight and everything is causing these sugars to leave these leaves, meaning that they turn colors whenever the sugar is like evaporating from them i guess maybe not evaporating but just changing so it's due to sugar actually is the reason why leaves change colors but then i also found the very next fact says that leaves don't really even change colors so if you were already Mm -hmm. confused by the sugar thing this is sure to confuse you even more so uh, apparently all the colors that you see on a leaf as it's changing have always just been there but they just don't come out until the conditions are right so as i just said before it depends on the sun it depends on how much chlorophyll is in them like you said kind of like photo well it has to do with photosynthesis it's the only word i know about plants scientific um yeah so but when the leaves actually are getting less sunshine then of course they're not producing as much chlorophyll and the green color starts fading but it's really like layers of color that are already under there that start coming out so it's like 
when the green layer comes off, then you see the red layer, or then and then the next layer. What comes in off. the so, world? Yeah, I had no idea it was that complicated. Um, uh, but green is just the dominant color of a leaf for most of the year for a plant. So then when it starts losing its, it's like shedding. Isn't that weird to think it's that there's sugar? Like, <laughs> yes, I'm so confused. Um, I don't have leaves a change color question? because they don't really change color and they're full of sugar. So now you know. Now everything. I'm going to eat leaves. This is <laughs> not know. helpful at all. My my son keeps trying. He's super into plants right now. We have a million plants going on our porch, and uh, one of the things he's like finding stuff, and he's like, "Mom, Google this and let's see if we can eat it." Like on walks. Oh and no! Stuff. I'm yeah. like, yeah, I'm terrified <laughs> of what I'm going to eat because he pressures me so much. He's so good at peer pressure, oh, um, no. <laughs> and I'm good at googling. So I've eaten some. Really Really weird things recently. One was like a pear, but I promise you it wasn't a pear. But I'm still here, so I'm okay. But on the plus side, I feel like your son is the one, like, if he were to get interested in, like, poisonous plants and learning what they are, like, he's the one I would want to take with me to, like, make sure I didn't eat anything dangerous. Absolutely. Honestly, in any life thing, I'm like, I need you here, kid, because yeah. you're way smarter I than I am. I need you to learn everything about this and then help me. <laughs> I know. When he gets a good obsession, I'm like, finally, one that's useful to me. <laughs> My last one has to do kind of with what we did before, so I'm just going to skip it. And let's end on um, sugar leaves. Sugar leaves. Perfect. Sugar cane. I want sugar cane. I used to eat it when I was a kid. Why did I have sugar cane? But my dad used to get it. I did it too. To and us. where did I get it from? Because I I don't know where to get any now. No, oh, I do. It's my miamifruits.com. Believe me, I've been on that <laughs> website a thousand times with this plant thing. Sometimes my son just says, Do you want to just scroll through miamifruits.com? I'm like, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> sure. I don't know what's changed since yesterday, but yeah, I've seen a lot. Oh my <laughs> gosh. All right, guys. Well, that was the episode for this week. We will be back next week. Same time, same place, new story. Have a great week. Bye.